to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, John Noonmaker, who is a software engineer and owner of Box Out Sports and Fewer and Faster. John joins us from South Bend, Indiana in the United States. John Nunemaker, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Yeah, I'm excited too. I've, I've definitely written a lot of code and I have a lot of, of thoughts and feelings on maintainability and stuff like that. So I'm excited. Oh, I think you might have mistaken what this podcast is actually about. This isn't about, would you say code? So what's, what's that? I'm kidding. Anyway, <laughs> so as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Yeah. So I thought about this a little bit and I feel like um, just one of the things that has bit me the most. So I don't even know if this is something that like, you know, 10 years ago I would have picked. I probably wouldn't have, but it's just keeping things up to date. That's like uh, across, you know, there's probably five or six Rails apps that I'm kind of generally responsible for now, either side projects or hobbies or businesses and stuff like that. And that's probably one of the biggest things is just keeping the dependencies up to date. The farther they get behind, you know, the harder it is to update. Packages go missing, URLs change. Obviously in like a single language, it might be easier. So if you're in Ruby, you know, you have gems and you can do things like that. But, you know, we have things like a box out that we use packages that, you know, we're on for specific small slices of the application that are like super old. And they're at the point where, I mean, it's like, I have to have uh, friends, former friends from, from GitHub who know ops and stuff, be able to like find, track down the packages and update things when it goes wrong, because it's so far behind now. And then it's like, when you go to update, that can be super scary. So it's like, we kind of limp along. And then at some point it's like, okay, now it's time to go all in and do this. And that's definitely not the way I would recommend maintaining software. So that does happen. I mean, even for people who like care about maintenance and stuff like that, but I would say in general, like keeping that stuff up to date, the more you do, the better you are. I used to like live on edge rails to like write, you know, like main or whatever was was going on there and then i think i went through a time where i was like oh no that's that's too close to the edge and you feel a lot of pain and so now i've kind of on that that spectrum of like one side is you know on the edge and the other side is not updating and things get painful i've kind of balanced more in the in the middle towards the keeping things up to date side and that just is is from what i have found to be the least painful to keep things going so that's probably the the first thing you talk about things like dependencies and it's an interesting thing where, you know, I work in Ruby on Rails in the consulting space for such a long time as well. So we work with a lot of companies where that's a really hard thing for them to do because there's this interesting, people might set up and get them things out the door and ship it. And then you're focused on your product. And then you kind of start to deviate because you don't necessarily like keeping like, well, what's that new, those like small incremental updates to a dependency. One argument often is like, well, you got to keep them updated so that you're patching security holes that might've been found in, in some dependencies that you're relying on. I know for this for a fact, but my experience has been that most of the code changes and dependencies are not security related. They're like small yeah. little bug fixes for things that you may or may not be encountering yourself, just some new feature additions, someone's pull request that got merged. And so there's this interesting thing. It's like, well, we could do this because now we're going to keep up to date with this particular gem and all the other dependencies that that gem has downstream. So you kind of like weigh these things up and you're like, well, maybe not right now, but I'll get to that later. Maybe I'll wait a little while. And then otherwise some dependencies have a lot of frequent activity. 
And then there's also people that would say, well, there's been no commits in, you know, on the Git repository in almost a year. So is this even being maintained anymore? How mm -hmm. do you think about that kind of stuff when there's some code that doesn't really need to change very much and some code that seems to be changing a lot, but it doesn't necessarily mean that one's better than the other necessarily in terms of like how you pick a dependency to rely on and or how do you how often you frequently patch those like or bring in those those changes how do you think about that kind of stuff yeah that's a good question it depends on the app and it depends on you know the dependency and so like i have two that are like my primary so box out is one and so that's a rails app and then we also have like some various like a couple of node things and some other stuff like that and then Flipper is like, you know, again, mostly Rails and stuff like that. So in each of those, there's obviously heavy front end stuff. So there's a lot of JavaScript dependencies or a lot of Ruby dependencies and stuff like that. So the way I kind of look at it and the way we do as like a team, so like on Boxout, we kind of split who's in control of what. So Steve kind of is more of the front end. I'm kind of more of the back end. Obviously, we overlap. And so I kind of watch the Ruby side of things. So is Ruby out of date? Do they get a new version? Is Rails or all the you know gems and dependencies that we use, the packages? And so I kind of keep those up to date. And then he he kind of watches the JavaScript side. And so once in a while, you know, I'll change something on that side. But as far as how we once we, you know, have split kind of that role, how we split it, I would say what what I do when I look at it is first off, I always have like a dependabot or whatever it's called on mm -hmm. GitHub turned on. That's super helpful. Honestly, that's been one of the, I would say the most helpful things is turning that on like really verbose. Like every time something changes, I want to know about it. And then I want to decide, is this something that I want to update or not? And so I think, you know, getting to like the heart of the question you're asking is like, how do you decide? And so for me, I try to keep patch stuff up to date on like everything that's not, that seems, I always have a gut sense of like, how dangerous is this? So you can look at like a certain thing and you can say, is this going to be a dangerous update or not? And honestly, like most of the time, like updating a Ruby version doesn't feel that dangerous. It, you know, it might have like a lot of like mm. other rippling effects where you have to update other gems. And so then it becomes dangerous. But if you're on like, you know, let's say Ruby 3.2 and 3.3 comes out at, you know, last Christmas, that usually is a pretty easy and safe thing to do. Whereas if you're going, like if you have the AWS SDK and it's got, you know, you're, maybe you're using S3 or something like that, that usually pretty stable, big company, they have a lot of QA and stuff like that. You're Maybe you're updating your job system. Okay, that might be a little more of a scary one, you know, because if all of a sudden the jobs aren't processing or there's different error handling or instrumentation, it, it could be a bigger deal. Or even just, for example, we use a project called Good Job, and it's a queue that's based on Postgres. It keeps things nice and simple for the number of jobs that we process a day. And when we update that, we have to be careful because sometimes there's migrations. And so you need to know, like run this command to, and even just when new people have joined the project, you know, they'll go in there and be like, oh, I'm going to update this quick. And I'm like, whoa, 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 let's, <laughs> let's just double check and make sure that like, you know, here's a couple things with this dependency that we have to do. So I've started keeping that maybe, I can't remember if it's in the readme or if it's in another file, but I have like, here are like particular packages that you should maybe take some care when you update. And then the rest are like, just keep the patches up to date. If there's a minor version, you know, click test some places where it's used, run the automated tests, you know, things like that. And if it's a major version, you know, let's usually let's carve out like some time to do that. Cause usually major versions will have not just deprecations, but things actually pulled out and things that you have to change and, and stuff like that. So my approach is basically fear-based. So it's like, how scary is this change? And then based on how scary it is, you know, that's how fast I move. And, and that's worked pretty well. And I'm obviously much slower on the JavaScript side because I'm not as skilled in that area anymore. So on that side, I'm like, 
I'll usually double check with somebody else who I trust a little more and say like, hey, do you think this is a scary thing or not? If they're like, no, then yeah, I'll handle it myself. If they think yes, then I'll kind of let them run with it. No, that's that's really interesting. And you know, one of the things you're thinking about there is like, you know, how dangerous or how scary is this change? And you kind of have a some sort of gut sense about this, or maybe at a glance when you're looking at, you know, the changes that were in it come through independent bot. Independent bot, yeah, I, I concur. That's been a great tool to everybody should enable that yeah. in their projects and it'll send you pull requests make it easy for you but it's just like how do you feel like you built up that confidence to understand mm. where, where you kind of know like you have the a, kind of an instinct about it to some way and you're like i think you, or do you just know like i could probably we could probably undo this if it's a if it causes a huge problem but people that are like earlier on in their career especially maybe coming into an organization and they're like i don't know if this is, is this okay can we do this and then so it's like, it's interesting. How do you build up that confidence or yeah. without having made some mistakes at some point? Because it's hard to maybe, maybe this is a bigger philosophical thing about people earlier in their career, learn from the mistakes of the other people on the team, you know, by just being around them. That doesn't necessarily always happen that way. Yeah, that's, that's a super good question. I have like a ton of thoughts rolling through my head. So like the first one is how do I tell? And it is experience. So I have brought down a lot of applications, github.com multiple times. So like I've, I've taken down a lot of applications. And so that has given me that like healthy sense of fear of like what things in my past have not caused availability problems and which things have caused. So, you know, from that standpoint, that's the number one thing that helps. The number two things, if you could like stand on the shoulders of giants or people who have just failed a lot, I look at them typically in maybe two different ways that come to mind right away. So the first one is anything that involves data. So like state. So anything that involves state is scarier to me. So if you're going to change your, again, your job system, like that's, that's going to involve some state. If you're going to do database migrations, that's involving state. If you're going to do changing the way you're accessing a data model or like creating new models, like anything that involves involves data changes, I have a very healthy and slow like approach to, I mean, like, like nothing makes me more panicky than dropping a database table. Even the one that I know it's like, it hasn't been written to, I can look at the stats, all that kind of stuff. But it's like, you know, anything that's deleting, removing, changing data access scares me. If it's just code changes, I'm like, worst case scenario, someone can't use the app for a second. You fix it, you deploy again, and they're, they're back and running and, and people are generally pretty tolerable of that. And so like that to me is like not not a big deal. So things in the views, things that involve the views, things that are just like, you know, things might look a little wonky for a little while or they might not work for a little while. That doesn't bother me as much, but data things like, so like that's probably number one thing that hits me. And then the number two thing that hits me is like, how pervasive is it in the app? So like, if it's just like a gem that's used in like one spot, and it's just one very, you know, isolated spot and, you know, something breaks there, it like is very not going to affect people's lives that much. Then again, that would be less fear for me. And so that, so you'd have to look at, you know, when you go to update this to say, look at the gem, look at the, or the package or whatever, look at the API that it uses and look for uses of that API in your app. And if it's used a bunch, then maybe go slower. If it's used mm -hmm. a very little amount, then you can probably go faster. So I think those are the two things that come to mind right away is anything that changes data is more scary. Anything that doesn't is less scary. And then anything that is pervasive in the app is more scary. And also, you know, as you do these more, probably the third thing is you'll just see certain projects are more stable and then they make you feel safer and certain projects are less stable and you always have problems with them when you update. And so you pick that up over time. Do you use the metaphor technical debt very often in your day-to-day -day work? 
I would say day to day, I don't use it a ton, but I like, I would say mentally, I work on small teams now. So like when I worked on big teams, I think technical debt was a very common thing. And we brought, you know, we talked about it a lot. We brought it up a lot. We accepted and tried to also, you know, on the other end, like eat it down or, or like reduce it in some way. But like, you know, for now, it's like maybe the biggest team I'm on is like two or three people. And so if it's a, a smaller team, I think it's easier to address technical debt because, you know, it just kind of is a natural thing and it works. If it's a bigger team, then I think you probably have to have something a little more systematized or like more of a process for it. That's just my experience. Again, like a GitHub, lots of technical debt and, you know, lots of opportunities to reduce it in smaller projects. You know, I think there's been a little less technical debt. And so it comes up less often and it's less of a thing. And I know that you've done, you know, in and out of consulting over the years as well. And that was yep. part of your career journey. And that's kind of like the area that I ended up sticking around in. And one of the things that I'm always like kind of fascinated about is, you know, when people think about, we come in and help companies that are dealing with a lot of technical debt problems. More often than not, those organizations aren't maybe necessarily inherently, they started by technical people. They just happen to have built some software. And so I don't know if there's necessarily a correlation that like the less, like GitHub, I would imagine there being, you know, tech debt concerns. There's probably less, maybe I'm totally making an assumption here, but was it hard to prioritize addressing technical debt within an organization that was heavily tech focused like that? Software team focused versus like you didn't need to necessarily fight and go to like product or manager type people and like really try to persuade them to like, we need to be keeping these things updated. We need to rethink this approach. Was that difficult within the context of somewhere like GitHub or was that actually, have you ever had to experience that part of like being a salesperson in a way for like advocating yeah. for the be long-term benefit of the code base and for your experience as a software engineer working with the, the code base that you're working with? Yeah, hundred percent. And honestly, like I, when I think of GitHub, right or wrong, it could just be, it's just me and my thoughts. So take that with a grain of salt. But when I think of GitHub, I think of them as a product company, not as like a tech company. So like they, they just, they were constantly pushing out like new things and new stuff. So like when you have that amount of change and churn and new things, and then directions change. And so you stop a project, but like all that code's still in the code base. And, but then that team moves on to a new part right. of the product. And so what happens with all that old stuff? It sits there, it rots, like who's going to remove it? There's no longer ownership over it. So like there was that, that was actually like, I, I think one of the things that I like, I tried to push a lot when I was there, probably, I don't think I you know succeeded or did that great at mm -hmm. it. But like, that was kind of like my if I were going to say like, what, what's the thing that I love the most, it's this, that kind of stuff. Like I always talk about like the dark corners, like, you know, I spent like a lot of time down in our custom active record adapter and stuff like that, or a lot of time in our instrumentation, a lot of time in our exception tracking. And so like those dark corners and stuff like that, like those are things that I was constantly trying to kind of give voices to, but like, again, GitHub was a product company. It was a rocket ship. And I think those two things are kind of at odds with reducing tech debt and the dark corners and that kind of stuff. So, so yes. Hey folks, it's me, Robbie. I want you to take a moment and close your eyes. Now picture your code in your applications as a symphony. Now to keep that symphony playing smoothly, you need an orchestra of tools. That's where our podcast sponsor, AppSignal, takes center stage. They combine the elegance of error tracking, the precision of performance monitoring, and the harmony of logging into one symphonic suite. Whether you're composing with Ruby, jamming with Elixir, orchestrating with Node.js, or harmonizing with Python, or maybe even a little bit of 
flourish of JavaScript, AppSignals got the sheet music for you. And here's the crescendo. Plans start at just $23 US a month. That's gotta be music to your budget's ears. Plus they're certified ISO 27001 and they dance the GDPR and HIPAA compliance beats. So don't miss a beat, my friends. Head on over to appsignal.com and tell them that your good friend Robbie from Maintainable sent you. Now, open your eyes and let the symphony of smooth coding begin. Let's get back to our show. So that's interesting. I, you know, I, you're right. Yes, GitHub is a product company. Has been. It's a product, and but I, I suppose it sounds like you were still able to spend some time working on those areas, but not necessarily yes. that it was inherently like there wasn't anyone saying they didn't bring you in necessarily. Just be like, just work on shipping new stuff. We'll get to that someday, maybe whatever. And it wasn't difficult. Yeah. Was it difficult to have those conversations in that type of environment, or was it just happened to like be in an environment where a lot of that was probably created, but there were people that were kind of brought in to help squash that out as best they could, but you know, mm -hmm. keep up to somewhat um, on some of that stuff. Yeah, I think it oscillated back and forth a lot. Like sometimes it would be like each individual team is kind of responsible for like tech debt or reducing tech debt or some area of the system. And then and then other times, then it would be like, oh, okay, that's maybe that's not working. So now let's have like a dedicated team. So I remember there was a point where we had like the high availability team and I, I was on that for like a little while. And our, our goal was like, okay, we've had a lot of incidents. Let's like analyze the incidents. Let's learn from them. Let's disseminate that information to everybody else and try and reduce the incidents going forward. And then we got like kind of stable. So then the team dissolved, moved on to other things. I think after that, it maybe became the core team. So it was like some idea of like, these are core foundational things you need in every app. So especially in big apps and you need them in a, in a performant way. So it's like, okay, we're having problems, let's say, you know, with Redis, maybe Redis was having, you know, some memory issues because it was being used in new ways that weren't planned for originally. And the team is really large. So now we come in and we build KV. Uh, we built like a, a small, like kind of Ruby library on top of MySQL and worked with the, you know, database systems people to like do it in an efficient way and have expiration and have some of the same semantics as Redis, but stored, you know, more on disk rather than in memory. And so it kind of it kind of shifted. So sometimes that that tech debt would be on a team. Sometimes it would be in, you know, like each individual team owned it. Then then it would oscillate to like, okay, now we need every we need an actual dedicated team. And then they'd be like, oh, actually, I think it can kind of shift back to the individual teams. And so mm. there was a little bit of that kind of like flow with that. As far as me being a salesman, I would say that like that's definitely something that I've I probably push more than I think is. Like there's a certain amount of like Brandon Keepers has this awesome talk that he did a long time ago that was like, I think the title was like the world runs on bad software or something like that. But it's basically this idea that like, you know, sometimes as engineers or developers, programmers, whatever you call yourself, you know, you care more about like the house of cards and you care more about like the, the way the code looks and stuff than remembering that the end result is that like people can use this and improve yeah. their lives or some, you know, in some fashion. And so I feel like that's the thing that like, if I were going to like look back over like the last 10 or 15 years, sometimes I got more stuck in like making things more performant or more resilient or like all this kind of stuff when it's like most people are okay. Like they get an error, they refresh the page and then it works and they're okay with that. It doesn't really bother them that much. So I think with box out, I've kind of shifted back. So I, I think I used to be more heavy of a salesperson on that side. And now it's more just like, what is the level of tech debt that is acceptable for this product, for the user base that's using it. And based on that, that kind of decides how much of a salesman I, I need to be in that area. One of the things I was hoping to get to chat with you a little bit about, you know, but I know that when you joined the organization, it was a couple of years in it, I think at least, right? Yeah. At that point. And 
So I would imagine there was a lot of stuff there that can you share any stories about, you know, coming into an existing code base with probably a lot of other people that you knew and they had, you know, maybe I'm not trying to call anyone out here, but more of like, are there some technical hurdles that you needed to, to kind of address and kind of take over some projects and maybe not having a lot of context for why things are the way they are? When we were brought in originally, it was almost like the idea was like a strike team. So like, that's the thing that they liked. It's like, look, we have five people that, you know, that we're bringing in that already work together, have communication patterns, have worked together for a long period of time. And I think they felt like they, were, they had currently maybe like a lot of kind of smaller and like individuals and stuff. And so they liked the idea of just like bringing this team and like throw them at a certain problem, you know? And we were problem solvers. I mean, I think those are the things, that's what a lot of people that get into programming, like they want to do is they want to solve problems and stuff like that. So I feel like that was the plan. And then we came in and we basically just all went five different directions because we all saw different problems. So some of it was like, for what you're saying on the, what were some of the specific technical challenges? I mean, there was a lot on the side of, so we went from 50, I think when we joined, it was like 45 through 50. And we went from that and then like, say, 50 people or people employees? in all. Yep. So okay. employees in, in all. And then in the next year, I mean, it was well into the many hundreds and the first round of funding was maybe four months after we joined. Mm -hmm. So I think we joined in December, they took funding in like May or something like that. So like there was accelerated growth. So like when we joined, it was like, it was still small. It was everybody had kind of like areas of responsibility and ownership and stuff like that. And so we kind of just went into different spots that we thought would be helpful, you know? So like I went into, I was like, well, we don't have great analytics. What if, what if I worked on some, uh, some of that stuff? And Hoyt was like, well, our support app is kind of struggling. I'll help with that. And, and, you know, scaling that and making that work better and stuff, you know, and Steve's like, oh, I like the Mac app. So people kind of moved into different spots, but as I think more of the answer to that question is like, as it went from 50 to like in the many hundreds, then you have this explosion of like, you know, different ways to do things and, and different ways that things got done. So when you're coming into like a new code base like that, so like, you know, GitHub was maybe 45 to 50. Now we, we go into like a lot of growth, but there were already people there. They already had patterns they were doing and stuff. And I'll say like, like I'm probably a good person to talk to about coming into a new code base from the standpoint of having consulted. And we were kind of brought on as extra people and, and extra bandwidth and companies that needed a little bit more. But also I think I'm good to talk to because I've done a terrible job at it in the past. So like at GitHub, I came in and I was like, ah, everything in this app is totally different than the way I work. I don't know how to do this or this system, or this is different. I would do it a different way. And rather than being like flexible with that and rolling with what people, the current kind of patterns that were set up and stuff, I think I was like, okay, I don't know how to help with that. So instead I'm going to go like on the opposite side of the spectrum and I'm going to start like a new thing. So I built analytics like completely outside of GitHub. Like it was, I mean, obviously inside of GitHub in the sense that like it was hosted on the same infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. But I was like, I'm not going to build it inside of the monolithic Rails app. I'll build, build it like outside as a service and say, hey, this is like another way you could maybe approach some of these problems that we've had inside of the code base. And so that I kind of went like to that side of the spectrum. And I think that's probably going to be like this recurring thing while we're talking is like, me going to one side of the spectrum, being wrong, and then going to the other side, and then eventually kind of finding that balance. So I went all the way outside. We built everything totally separate. And then what I realized is like after, you know, however long, and we shipped uh, traffic graphs so you could see web traffic and stuff like that. What I realized is like that didn't make anything different inside of GitHub, GitHub, like the main repository. 
like it provided an example of perhaps how things could be extracted into a service and, you know, have new, you know, availability patterns or resiliency or things like that. But it didn't actually help the main heart and the code base. And I was like, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done it that way. So then I swung back the other way and I went all in to the code base. And I was like, what's the biggest problem right now inside of the code base from like an availability, resiliency, maintenance, all that kind of stuff. And that was notifications. And so notifications were basically like built and they were kind of running. But at the time they were like, I want to say 50% of like the utilization of our like primary database. And so like, you know, you have tons of features, but then that, that power github.com, but half of the actual data store is just this one, you know, feature. And that's like, mm -hmm. that's kind of a problem. And so I was like, all right, I'll work on that. So I worked on that for a little while. And I would say that's where finding out like some things I had said to you in the past about like, why, why were things certain ways? And like going in, like when you come in new, one of the most important things to figure out is that why, because you can see the how you can see like what people are doing and that's, that's obvious and apparent, but you know, you go into like, Git commit history. Okay. GitHub was made for, you know, Git, but like, that doesn't mean that the Git history of GitHub is great. So like I would go in and a lot of times, you know, I'd be like, okay, well, why is this, you know, stored this way? Or why is this, this way? And it'd be like, try this, try again. That's not working. Ah, you know, it's just like, those are four commits in a row. And so I think that's one of the things I think about the most of like going into a new code base is trying to figure out like, the why of why things work a certain way and stuff like that. Go through the history, talk to the people if they're still there or anyone who knew those people, you know, get a sense of like how things kind of work and the lay of the land and then try to like integrate with that and bring like iterative change rather than just, you know, like I did on the analytics stuff. I completely stepped outside and started from scratch in this greenfield thing. So I think that's kind of the biggest thing is going back. It's like when you go into a new thing, kind of take some time, learn where you're at, get the lay of the land, and then start doing iterative changes rather than trying to like, you know, wholesale change everything or the rewrite or all that kind of stuff. That's the big probably oscillation on the spectrum that I learned on that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, you know, and sharing the that context of uh, looking at some code, looking at the Git history. And even in a place like GitHub, there's probably well-known developers that were there that were, you know, their Git commit yeah. history was a lot of trial and error is like a part of what we do as software developers. Mm -hmm. And especially early on in maybe a project or early on in a, a feature thing where we're trying to figure something out, like there is a lot of that kind of like, is this going to work? We test it testing in production or whatever because you can't is this fix the thing and you you yeah. kind of get in this cycle be like you're just trying to speed things up and so you start losing some of the context behind what you're changing and why you're changing and you're moving really quickly and, and like i definitely do that as as well sometimes we're working on some small little projects or here and there or and i feel like i get a little bit of a free pass because i the owner of the company so if, someone, <laughs> if i do that on a client project no one's calling me out necessarily but i feel a little bad that i'm doing that in a way because i know that mm -hmm. i'm but it's also like it's just more of like a, it's a time thing but it's like wow if i could do you feel like that sort of thing has changed how you approach do you feel like you put a lot more time and yeah. in planning into how you're going to package up a, a new feature update or when you ship something and you're primarily working by yourself or a small team, do you feel like you hold yourself to the same sort of standards that you would expect other people on a team to? Yeah. When I work by myself, I don't, I go cowboy. I just do whatever I want. But when I'm working with teams, I, one of the, I would say the biggest influences for me was someone named Jason Rudolph at GitHub. When he would submit like a pull request, you didn't have to ask him anything. Like it was like, 
here, you know, was my goal. Here's the motivation. Here's the alternative approaches. I think that's a really important thing that we forget about in like writing, you know, maintainable software is historically explaining why you made a choice and what were the choices you didn't choose and why, like that's a really fascinating thing to me. And I remember like that was something he always did really well. And I worked with him for maybe a year on one of the teams and we were working on, uh, I think that was maybe multi data center. So like when we, we first went to like, you know, from Virginia to like add a second data center. So we had to audit every network call and remove whatever we could and a lot of that kind of stuff. And I feel like that's that was like really helpful for me was working with him and seeing how he didn't just say like, here's what I did. It was like, here's why I did it. And there was tons of explanations. Like he thought about who is going to consume this and I'm going to write it like for them so that they get the information they need to make the decision that they need to make. And it was just so thoughtful and respectful. And like, you know, not that like other people will kind of do that maybe like on a, a couple paragraphs or something, but like he always had these huge write-ups and not so long that you you couldn't read it, you know, but the, the pull request would be, you know, a couple scrolls or something like that mm -hmm. instead of just like a paragraph. Yesterday I made a pull request and it was like two sentences, you know, <laughs> again, small team. So like I can get away with that and I'm the owner, like you said, so you know, I can get away with that. But on bigger project with bigger teams, it's really important to have that context of like, and I remember that was a big thing for several years at GitHub was like, not just why you made a choice, but like what were alternatives you considered and why you didn't choose those instead. And so that was like a, a really good thing, I think, to learn is is that. You know, you mentioned the Git commit history and the pull request history on yeah. the project. The Do you feel like you go back and look at that stuff on a regular basis on your projects or is it just in case maybe one day we might need that? Like what's your real world? Ex you mentioned mm -hmm. like some specific examples where you're like, oh, it's to try this, try this. And maybe that happens. Yep. But like, I often wonder if developers go back in history as much as we like to think that they do. So I will say I personally do a lot. I end up going back a lot. No, I don't just like scroll back through my like greatest hits of like get commits and stuff like that. Like it's more that like you like for me, I'm just like blame is probably my number one feature that I use. Like I had, you know, I have a shortcut in VS code that's like hit one button and go to the, the blame on this file in GitHub at this line number. And I use that all the time. And I remember actually one of the features on there is like, there's this like little, like three little squares, like a, you know, looks like a, like a teleporting back into time or something type thing. Mm -hmm. And it goes to the parent git commit. So like the previous one that kind of like affected this line. And actually Jason Rudolph is the one who made, who like worked on that feature in like a hack week because he was a, a big, you know, spelunker back back as well and and so like i find myself going to the blame and then going back in history quite often and i think a lot of that is just like you know as you maintain an older and older code base it's like who did this why what were they thinking like and that's part of the value i think of github as well or you know gitlab or whatever you use when you have this like pull request that's like this bigger explanation than the commit like a lot of people i think use commits there are some a small people on the on the bell curve that use commits almost like a pull request. And it's like, here's like a unit of change. But like the majority of us are just kind of like live streaming what we're doing. And, you know, we're committing to almost to kind of like get it out of your head. It's like you you have all these 20 files and you're like, okay, thinking about these 20 files and all the changes in them is like a lot mentally. So I'm going to like uh, these files, you know, these method changes, these are all kind of bunched together, these tests. So I'm going to commit these. 
and then I'll go to the next ones and then I'll get down to like two files and it's like, ah, like I can kind of breathe again. And so I feel like, you know, with with the way that kind of works, pull requests become really helpful to see that that previous history and stuff like that. But yeah, for me, I go back a lot and I don't know if it's just because, again, I worked in a lot of dark corners at GitHub and, and so I spent a lot of time going back or if it's just the spelunking. I actually, another reason why that just hit me is a lot of times I'm trying to build things that I don't know, like, I don't know how to do, or I don't know how to build. Like I've done a lot of multi-threaded stuff lately. Mm. And so like writing things that'll work, like sit in a, in a background thread and, you know, batch up and then submit to like an endpoint at some point. So analytics, telemetry, stuff like that. And I was like, I don't know how to do this. I, and I don't want to mess it up. I have this mm. dramatic fear of failure. So I was like, how do I do this? And so well, the best way to learn is just to look at other people's code. Like I did, a, I remember a long time ago, I did this talk that was like, don't, um, don't repeat yourself, repeat others. And the whole idea was like steal code from other people. And there's this massive repository of just tons of code on GitHub and you can go into it and you can learn anything you want to learn. So it's like, if you want to write telemetry, like what I did when I wanted to write telemetry is I was like, well, what are other projects that have telemetry? And I was like in the Ruby world, like Elastic, uh, company has an APM. New Relic has an APM. ROR versus Wild has written some APM code. That there's a segment. There's a whole bunch of them that have written, you know, all this like multi-threaded and processing, mm. batching, etc., and shipping code up. And so I spent a lot of time. I clone those repos locally. I open them all up in one workspace, so I have all the files right there, and I can say, okay, well they do this, and this other one uses a, you know, concurrent fixed thread pool, but they use like a, they don't use a fixed thread pool. Why is it different? And sometimes I'm like, I don't know. And so then I immediately, like I said before, I go to the blame and I'm like, maybe there's something in there that explains why they did this thing that I can learn from. And so I think like, that's part of why I end up going back a lot is just like in the, in the learning and at least on the open source side, obviously in the, in an actual business side, then it's like figuring out why a decision was made and, and trying to understand that. But on the open source side, it's usually trying to learn. You also mentioned earlier and when you're while you were at GitHub that you could potentially just go talk to some of the people that had previously worked on things yeah. in the open source world. Do you ever find yourself, have you ever contacted an open source, maybe someone that's no longer working on a particular open source project, but gone back to like look at and get blame? You're like, I still can't quite make sense of this. Have you actually taken that step to reach out to someone and be like, hey, can I ask you a few things about this? I don't think I have. That's a really, now I'm like, I should have, like, that should be like a more normal thing. Cause like you can get their email right from, yeah. you know, the get and stuff like, and I could, I could reach out. I, I've done it a couple of times on my own projects. So like HTD party is one that I've like handed off a few different times to other people. And then eventually like, they were like, eh, I don't really want to maintain it anymore. So then I'll, I'll take it back on. And now it's like, it's just permanently mine and I'm okay with mm -hmm. that. But so sometimes I'll reach back to them and say, Hey, like you included this, you know, compression stuff, or you in included this other thing. And I'm like, I don't know anything about this stuff. Like, can you just look at this one PR and like, help me decide if it should be merged or not, or if there's any changes. And so I I've done that a little bit from the learning standpoint, but I haven't done it just on that when I'm pure learning and I just reach out to like someone that I don't know at all. That sounds like a really good idea. And even just to get on a call, if they would, or something like that, I don't have zoom burnout though. Like a lot of people do. So <laughs> I don't do very many zooms. Yeah. You can hop on a tuple or whatever. Yeah. Maybe with someone. Yeah. It's interesting because like, this is something I try to like talk about with our, my team. It's like, feel free to ask people. Like we lived in scenarios where we're working on client projects that have been around for a number of years and previous employees, you know, they're no longer yeah. at the company, they're elsewhere. And, and people are like, oh, this person's Scott did this thing like six years ago. Do we know why? Yeah. I'm like, I don't remember. I remember him like hating that project for a little while because <laughs> there was some weird problem. And I'm like looking through Slack, trying to make sense of like things. And I'm like, 
you know, we, we could just email him. He yeah. doesn't have, he's not obligated to respond, but we can just say that like, Hey, no worries. If you don't want to maybe answer something, but if you found this really weird thing, do you have nightmares about that still? So I don't know. I think there's a, I think, I mean, if someone has, I guess maybe thinking of like, if someone called you today and said, Hey John, yeah. uh, you worked on this thing at GitHub six years ago. Do you, I cannot make sense of this. Do you remember this Would that? How would you respond to that? I would be stoked. I would, I would absolutely love it. And actually it's happened to me. So like they, cause I don't know if they still do, but you know, as of three or four years ago, when I, when I talked to them, they, it was a flipper question. They were like, mm -hmm. Hey, like we noticed that like flipper works in this way, you know, inside of GitHub, like we're thinking about doing this other thing. Do you think that could work? How could we do it? What would the problems be? And like all this kind of stuff. And so it was myself and like, you know, two other people on the call. And that was fun. That was really fun to like be able to, cause I would rather be able to help and have them keep using flipper than, you know, them be like, ah, this is trash. Let's just get rid of it. And like switch to something else that just, you know, does it out of the box or something like that. So yeah, so it, it happened. It's definitely happened on, on flipper. I don't think it's happened. I can't think of anything else where it's happened on but i would totally i would be up for it yeah but i again i don't have zoom burnout i'm like and i there's not a lot of like nerds in the area like where where i live there's a, like just a couple of us and stuff and so like i know them i hang out with them but like i i do random you know this kind of random zoom stuff with like lots of different people in the rails community i've started reaching out and just being like can we just get on a call and just talk like i just want to hear like what are you learning what's new what's cool what's fun compare things i i just think it's i don't know what the right word is like i i hate i hate the word mastermind but like you know just something where you can kind of learn from other people and stuff like that so yeah i would totally be game if if somebody or even just on an open source project they're like i don't understand this like i'm dying to teach the threaded stuff that i've learned i i need to like sit down and just write some blog posts or do some tutorials or something like that because it's it's not as scary as i thought it was yeah you definitely should do that i'll keep an eye out for that let's take a moment to also you know you mentioned flipper a couple times now just for people listening that don't know what the heck you're talking about can you tell us a little bit about flipper and flipper cloud and what led you to decide to build it yeah, sure. I So Flipper was just a long time ago. I worked on a project called Words of Friends. It was like iPhone, Android game, or it's kind of like Scrabble. I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> my mom still plays it because that's like the closest she comes to using my code. So my mom still like religiously plays it, but it was really fun and a cool game. I, I joined when it was, you know, maybe 70,000 requests a minute and watched it grow and all, helped launch it on Facebook, all that kind of stuff. And every time we would roll new, it was basically, I joked that I wrote memcache for like a year. That's all I did was just write append only sets in memcache and write through caching, read through caching, just all this kind of stuff. And every time we'd roll out a new caching strategy that like would give us more headroom on the service, it would go down. It would just, con the, the site would go down because you'd have a cold cache. And so we were like, what are we going to do? And this was a long time ago. I don't even, 2010, 2009. And so no gray in my beard at that point. And like, I was like, okay, this keeps going down. And I was working with Jesse Newland, another person in the community. And he was like, well, let's try this thing called rollout. I saw like, you know, another guy did that. And like, let's try that. So we did. And we rolled, successfully rolled out the new caching strategy with no outages. And I was just like, this is the coolest thing ever. But then for us on that project, rollout used Redis at that time. It, it now can talk to whatever. It has more of an adapter pattern. But back then it only talked to Redis and Redis was our weakest point. And so Redis kept going down. So then we forked the project and fronted it with memcache, which is funny to have like memory in front of memory, but it worked because we had terabytes of memcache. So that helped. And so it's, it's just this way to enable features, either like percentage of actors over time or turn it on for like one person or two people or turn it on for a group of people like staff or employees. And so it's a way to like slowly release your software separate from boot time. So typically you would deploy, 
and then your processes would reboot and now your new code is available um, to the to the users immediately. If, if anything's wrong, you have to like, you know, fix and then deploy again, or you have to roll back or there's something like that. And with uh, feature flags, you can just say, okay, I'm going to separate when my users are able to use this code from when I deploy. So you can deploy whenever you want and it can, you know, increase the confidence of getting code out faster and then testing it in production in like a more safe manner. So it's Flipper is, is feature flags. It started because I was working on Words of Friends. We kept having availability problems with new caches and cold caches, and we needed a way to slowly warm caches on a consistent basis. So once you know it was turned on for Robbie, Robbie always got the new caching and never got the old caching that was now stale. And so I, I just like one weekend, I was like, you know what? I just found a couple things kind of awkward in rollout and I didn't want to force people to use Redis. I wanted it just to be like an adapter. It's like get, set, delete, you know, or something simple. And so I hacked on it and built it. And then like people started using it. I still wasn't, GitHub wasn't. And then at some point, I, uh, 2015, I went on paternity leave when my son was born and a couple of people at GitHub just added it to GitHub and they mm. asked me a couple questions and I helped with a couple of problems that they had. And then, cause we were having like just deploy trains. So we're talking like people just in a line to deploy. And, you know, if anything happened, then it's like everybody got pushed back by a half an hour because we got to resolve the incident and stuff. And so we kind of moved from that style of like deploy is when code gets released to now using Flipper. It was like you could deploy as fast as you wanted. It didn't didn't really matter. It was like when you turned on the feature is when the code went live. And so and that's the click of a button, you know, we had, we built a UI into GitHub and then eventually I uh, made an open source kind of version of it and stuff like that as well. And so that's, that's where Flipper kind of came from was just this actual need of like, every time I do something, you know, the site goes down, how can I do this more slowly so that the site won't go down? And then, you know, eventually what it became was like, I was at GitHub and I was like, I don't love big companies. I want to, I like small companies, big impact and stuff like that. And so I was like, I'm, I want to do something else, but I need something lined up. And I thought, well, maybe I could make some kind of commercial version. Sidekick was huge at that mm -hmm. point. And Sidekick is uh, like a background job processing system in Ruby and, you know, fully supports like a whole team of people now. It has a commercial, ver has a free version and then a commercial version, you know, a couple different tiers that you can pay for. I thought, well, maybe I could make like a paid version of code. And so that's why uh, I started working on Flipper Cloud, which is just a hosted version. And so my biggest thing was like, I didn't know if it would, if anyone would ever use it. Cause I was, I'm, I'm coming off of working at GitHub availability, resiliency. And I'm like, no one is going to want, you know, feature flags talking HTTP or some network to some right. external service. That's the, the core of their app. And so that was like kind of my fear. And I was like, you know what, what if we just flipped it and, and made it like, again, we have the adapter pattern. And so let's store features locally. And then you have this remote wrapper around it. And so the cloud is basically like a sync service and it gives you a bunch of tools on top of that. So audit logging, when things change, gives you, you know, rollbacks, it gives you permissions. You can say these people can change things in production. These people can't, all that kind of stuff. So it's like all the kind of niceties on top of that. So that's kind of like the trajectory, if, if that makes sense. It's basically just need and then need move to like okay, well, this doesn't work anymore. So I'm going to make my own version, the the programmer route of just like, I can do this better. And, mm -hmm. and so I did that. And then eventually got into GitHub and then it started uh, kind of growing from there and then wanting to like get out of GitHub and have some kind of soft landing. And then we kind of just didn't really actually do that. It, it didn't end up that way. 
and now we're, we're pushing on it really hard. Base. But there was definitely a few years where we just used it ourselves and didn't even have billing on it. And then we added billing, but didn't like say anything about it. And it kind of grew. And now we're like, okay, let's grow it. Let's do this. So. We'll be back with your interview with John in just a moment. Hi, it's me. Robbie, I just want to take a quick moment to say thank you. Yes, you for listening to the podcast. It's great. Please consider sharing links amongst your peers. Toss a link into Slack channel. Send an email. Say, hey, you should check this podcast out. I learned something from it. Or this guy's totally wrong. Disagree with Robbie and every one of his guests. All 160 guests to date. I just disagree with him. Or, or somewhere in between. Also, have you joined the newsletter? If you head over to maintainable.fm and click on newsletter in the navigation, just give me your email address. And what are you going to get? You're going to get an email for every new episode that comes out. And then also, I will occasionally send out an email to talk about one of our past episodes, an episode that might be of interest to you. Again, I've interviewed like 160 people so far. That's 159 other episodes you may or may not have had any exposure to. So head over to maintainable.fm, click on newsletter, and give me your email address, and you can opt out at any time. And now, let's get back to your interview with John Newmaker. Yeah, I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes so people can check out Flipper Cloud. You know, just something I'm trying to kind of, you know, you were talking a lot about kind of the low level aspects is from my own curiosity, um, you mentioned that it stores stuff locally. So is like the syncing something that happens like occasionally? So is it like every single request to, you know, your web application or API is checking, making this call? Or is it that it's checking locally and occasionally your local data set is synced with Flipper Cloud? Yep. Yeah, it's more of that. So the mental model that that I've been starting to like kick around because I think it makes sense to people is Dropbox. So Dropbox, you have all your files on your laptop and you can access them whenever you want, whether you have internet or not. Mm. And so Flipper Cloud works the same way. So in Flipper Cloud, you have a local adapter and then there's a remote adapter that, that wraps it. And so it's all it's all hidden to you. You just mm. pick a local adapter and you put in you know a, a, a token so it knows which environment to go to and all that kind of stuff. But all your your data is, is synced locally. It's all there in your app, however you want to do it. If you want to store it on the file system or if you want to store it in Redis or front it with memcache or active record is probably the most popular. So that's part of rails for that's the part that accesses the, the database. And so you can store it in active record, use that until it starts to become an issue and then scaling wise, and you can wrap it with memcache or Redis or whatever. And in the sense that when I say wrap, I just mean like a read through cache. So, you know, it checks to see if it's in the cache. No, goes to active record, then adds it in the cache. And then next time it, it goes to the cache. So you always have your local, it's there. It keeps track of things. And then anytime you make changes, you need to get that change to your app. So we have two mechanisms. One is like uh, interval polling that happens locally. That's some of the background threading and stuff that I was talking about earlier. So we have a adapter that we wrote that fires up a background thread and then on an interval will hit cloud and then it will do a diff on your local and then apply the diff. It just assumes, you know, the remote is the source of truth mm. and you just want local to match that. So that's kind of how that works. And then we also have webhooks as a way to do it like even faster. So if you have like a 10 second poll and it updates every 10 seconds in the background, you can have webhooks. And the second you hit the button, we're going to queue a job and then mm -hmm. fire an HTTP request to your app. And it's like all signed and stuff like that. So people can't fake it. And then that will actually force a sync. Um, so that can be like sub second. You, you mm -hmm. can be up to date um, if, you, if you want that. But a, a lot of people just use the polling. It's, it's pretty easy to get going with, so. Interesting, is that primarily a Ruby thing at the moment or is there? Yeah, so again, I, I'm Ruby and I'm Rails for better or worse. And I, I just, it's, 
I've tried Python, Node, every you know everything that's Java, all kinds of stuff, and I just keep coming back to Ruby. And so, what the plan is right now, it might be a terrible plan, but our plan is basically we like Ruby, we like Rails, we want to build tools kind of in that area, and then peripherally, like a lot of Ruby and Rails, especially at a certain size, will build like kind of partition off some some functionality into Go or into Node or something something else. And so, uh, eventually, we'll have some other you know ways to access that. The biggest thing that prevented that is like one of the functionality bits of Flipper is you can define a Ruby block and you can say, you know, a block mm. might be like staff. And so staff is like everybody that works at your company and it's a block and the block or, or Lambda, proc, whatever receives an actor. And so inside of that block, you can just write Ruby code like actor dot, you know, is staff mm. or staff question mark or whatever you want to do. And that doesn't port to other languages. And so we were like, okay, well, that's not gonna, like you'd have to have a you know, a proc and go and a proc and whatever, and they'd have to always be synced up and that just sounds painful. So instead we've written this um, expressions is what we're calling it thing where it's kind of like a little bit of like a programming runtime that can be evaluated live. And then it just has like a schema for how it gets stored. So it's like, here's a schema and then here's some, you know, programming stuff that can be written to apply that. So then you can have your group be, you have properties, uh, you know, string key, string value, and you're going to have flipper properties of like, you know, plan is basic or plan is premium, uh, age is 18 or age is 21 or, you know, whatever you can imagine. And those get piped through the expression and then it returns, you know, true or false. And eventually it can return, it will be able to return other things as well. So that at that point, once that is solid, it's in beta or alpha even right now, once that's out, then we'll have, uh, we'll get some other language support and stuff like that in. But we didn't want to do that with Ruby blocks because that just, it just felt too painful. So yeah, thanks for uh, providing some kind of some context there. Um, switching gears a little bit. One of the things we're talking about back to like the just topic of maintaining projects, how mm -hmm. important is it to you? Do you think that personal satisfaction is in when it comes to software maintenance? It's super important. It's funny that you brought that up because like that's probably for me that's one of my that that's one of my biggest points but I didn't even occur to me until you asked the question uh but like HTTP party I it's one that I've it's a net HTTP library like kind of a layer on top and like I've maintained that forever and like it has a a post install message it's like you install the gem and it says you know when you HTTP party you must party hard and it's very divisive. Like half the people in the community hate it and half the people in the community retweet it every week, you know, when they see it and they get excited. And I've I've left it in forever and ever and ever because it makes me laugh. <laughs> and it makes, you know, half of the of the community laugh. Um, or maybe it's more than half, maybe it's I don't know, but it makes some number of people. And so, you know, from that standpoint, like, you know, me maintaining that project, it's like that's you know part of my enjoyment. The same thing on on, on HD Party is like. You know, people want to add like these crazy things for cookies or, you know, redirects or like this stuff mm -hmm. that like, I'm just like, I am not going to use that. And th those kinds of like, we added multi-part, you know, which is like, mm -hmm. yeah, multi-part is nice to have, but now I have to maintain multi-part and that's less fun for me because I don't know anything about multi-part. So it takes me a lot longer to do it. So I think maintainability is important, especially for open source, because if you don't enjoy it, like you're going to burn out and you're going to, you know, stop maintaining it and you're going to stop using it. And then that's not really helpful for anyone. So from that standpoint, Flipper is probably like, I would say my best example of where I'm like, I focus on the parts that I really enjoy in Flipper. And I focus on keeping the enjoyment high 
on keeping the involvement, you know, of other people, not just being a lone wolf high and some of that kind of stuff. And as long as that's, you know, happening, then I love the project and I, and I keep working on it. And if, if it doesn't, you know, then, I mean, it ends up like the graveyard of all my other ones where, you know, it's just, they're just dead. And I, even though I put, you know, this is a dead project, I'm not maintaining it anymore. I still get pull requests and stuff. And then I feel bad and feel guilty. So I think, I think enjoyment and happiness is actually, it's very important. And you should probably think about it at the beginning, like how, you know, try to explain to people what your goal is with the project. Is your goal to make it used a lot? Is your goal to just put it out there so people can learn? Is your goal somewhere in between those two? You know, how receptive are you going to be to pull requests? Um, all that kind of stuff. Have issue templates, have pull request templates that, that GitHub can do just to kind of communicate to people what what's your involvement, what's your enjoyment, and what and what do you want from other people or do you not want anything? That kind of stuff from the beginning, I think is really helpful. It helps with with feelings. So as someone that has worked on some open source projects over the years, I find it interesting to try to think ahead of time. And maybe it was just like the timing of when I released certain projects that mm -hmm. I had no foresight for. Like, it was like, I was scratching a personal itch. I needed something mm -hmm. or, you know, I think about, you know, you mentioned you have your post install message for your, your Ruby gem there. And, and yeah. you know, I've definitely seen that many times over the years because I, I use your project on a regular basis for some fun little internal projects that we use to do stuff with. And, oh, cool. you know, when I think about when I first created, uh, I don't know if you know, oh, my Z shell is like a thing that I created once upon a Oh time. yeah, I use it. I love it. I just and, switched a year ago. It's life-changing. It's oh so God. good. Just you just finally, uh, I feel yes. like at this <laughs> welcome to the party. Um Thanks. we have a different party. But my whole rationale for creating that project was just I wanted my coworkers to use the same just to use eShell, period. Because when we were pairing, you know, next to each other in the office, I'd be like, you don't have all my shortcuts. And yeah. I'm like, just to copy my Z shell configuration. And then and my Z shell configuration mm. was basically kind of comprised of a bunch of things that other people in the Ruby community primarily were sharing and passing into pasties or gists at the time. Yeah. Rick Olson, he, I know you know, yeah. uh, he actually wrote quite a bit of the stuff that I used that was probably ended up being part of the original version of OMZ show as well. But I just kind of packaged everything together and was like, I have a readme. I was like, just get clone this thing and then we will have it. And then my team, everybody installed it that way. And I was like, yay, victory. I had no idea that it was going to become this thing. I had no idea... I was yeah. thinking about issue templates. I didn't even know if that was a thing you could do. And that probably wasn't even a thing you can do in GitHub at the time. I doubt but, it, yeah. So I didn't know what I wanted from people. But I shared it, posted it on my blog, and the people started contributing. Or like, I want to make changes to the, you know, to the colors. And I'm like, why? My thing looks great. And so like themes <laughs> were not part of it. Plugins were not part of it the first release. Like those things yeah. came like a month or two later. I had no idea that that was going to happen. So there's this interesting thing about like, how do you think about if you're going to start a, a new gem or a new open source project? How do I want this to be used by others versus it just being like, I need this for myself and I might as well make it public because I like to work openly like that. How do you think through that? I think that's that's a really good point. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't think about. I didn't think about either. Also, I don't want to go crazy on ZSH, but like that, I, I was like, why are people using this? I don't get it. I don't get it. I just want to use Bash. I'm, I, who cares? Like, And now I use it and I, it is, it's seriously so good. So anybody that's pause it, go install it and then come back. But, you know, for me and how I, I think about it is just 
anything that that's new that's going to go out i try to put in there like this is you know what i'm going to do this is how long it's going to last or this is like my goal or am i going to be receptive to things being pulled in like flipper i like if i get a couple of really good pull requests from people i just add them on the i'm like do you want to be on the core team and they're mm -hmm. like yeah it's not even a real thing it's not even like we don't have like meetups or parties or like it's just you know, I want other people to feel responsible and care for it. Cause I want it to like live on past just me, you know, yeah. Where whereas some of the other projects, it's like, who cares, you know, if they don't, that's okay. And it's hard to think about it on your first one, maybe, but like after a couple of projects, you definitely can start getting a sense of like, what, how should I approach this? Cause you have some experience then. So another aspect of it is that I'm always curious about is like, when I think about if, you, if people listening that have maybe not created any sort of, or not either whether they've contributed to or they've released a, a package out in the world. Do you have like other actually more open source projects that people have no idea that are probably never used that you worked on and never really took off or had much usage or, or have you always had like some ones that actually had a bit of traction? And because yeah. I have plenty of projects yeah. in my past, past PHP projects, other things that are mm -hmm. on SourceForge or something. And like, yeah. you know, I, like, I hope nobody finds that, you know, and, yeah. But I also kind of came up in the time when it was just like, I don't know, I'm relying on open source. I'm going to share it. It was like open source. There was like an ethos to it. And now there's people yeah. coming in and like, well, if nobody uses this thing, but me, why create it? You know, I might as well just go use someone else's thing. Yeah. Oh, I have a ton. I have absolute a, a graveyard on, on GitHub. I don't even know how many, but like, you know, that maybe people, they were like just useful for like a month or a couple months or like, Maybe they had a couple years and then like better. The great thing about open source is better things always come along if you don't maintain the project. Like if you don't maintain it and intentionally try to like make it better and grow it and get people involved and talk about it and like do the kind of not just the code writing, but like the marketing of it. If you don't do the marketing and, and telling people about it, something else will come along and will will replace it and your project will die. So I have... I have a ton of dead ones. Like one of my favorite ones was Gem Who Is. So it was like a Who Is like network. I, I discovered that like rubygems.org, if you like made a API call for a gem that didn't exist, it would return a 404. And so, and I was constantly making, again, I have this graveyard. So I had like, I don't know, I think I have 80 or some gems on my on my profile on Ruby Gems. And I was like, I want to name this. I want to name my new gem. And I got to see if it's available. So it was like searching a domain to see if the domain was available, you know? <laughs> so I, I figured out how to make like sub commands for the gem command. And so I made gem who is, and then you could say like, you know, scam or or whatever you wanted to call the, the gem that you were working on. And then, you know, that with that project, like it got used for a little while. And now like it's, everything's way better in the, in the, the packaging and all that stuff. It's so, like, it's completely dead. But like some of it still lives on because one of the things that I did is like whenever it returned to 404, I was like, ha ha ha, like it For shall sure. be mine or something, you know, silly to say like it's available and you can use it. And that's the RubyGems 404 page now. It's like something along those lines of like, you know, this is available or at least it was, it might not be anymore. Um, and so like, I, I think, you know, that kind of stuff is just fun. It, I, my approach is put it all out there and then just explain like set expectations um, cause I just think it's, I've learned so much from reading other people's code that I'm like, I just want to put everything out there. I'm not going to be embarrassed. I'm not going to worry about it. I'll just set expectations by saying, what is the state of the project or what is the goal and how is it going to be run? And then just be okay with, you know, how, however it goes after that. I think that's some, some good advice for those listening. If they're thinking about working on some open source projects, 
and or releasing something and, and making that public um, and reminding, you know, also the reminder that not all of those projects are going to gain traction. You may have a project that will never, mm -hmm. maybe this never happens for you. Maybe you don't have a project that, and that's okay too, because you're sharing your code with the world, but also you make a good point about, you have to kind of market these things. You have to tell people about them. You yeah. have to share this. It's like, if you build it and you toss up in GitHub, no one's going to find it. There's a lot of projects on there. I have no idea how many new repositories are being created. I I mean, as a musician, I, I hear things like, oh, there's like 100,000 new songs pushed to Spotify every day. And I'm wow. just like, how will anyone hear my music? Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I'm actually curious about that kind of data metric for GitHub. And I'm actually going to mm. be speaking to Kyle in the near future. Uh, oh, cool. And maybe I could ask him that. He might know that off the top of his head. All right. With that, I do have a couple of quick questions for you. You're, yeah. you're a very busy person. Very, And... So, so John, is there a non-technical, non-software book that you find yourself recommending to peers more often than not? I read a lot. So recommending one is probably hard. So one book that I'm looking up to the right because I have a bunch of books up there. So one is Hell Yeah or No by Derek Sivers. Mm -hmm. I really like that. I just like Derek a lot. He's got just a cool vibe and a lot of good writing on the internet. So like, that's one that I like. It's just like, are you just absolutely gung-ho, excited? You're ready to bring the energy for this? Or is it somewhere less than that? Because if yeah. it's less than that, don't do it. You know, like be gung-ho, be like excited about things. That's like something that I feel like I always try to bring energy, you know? And like, when I leave, I want people to be excited. Well, I don't, maybe they don't know what they're excited yeah. about, but I want them to feel excited, you know? <laughs> and so like, that's a, one book that I kind of liked. And then I'm actually reading one right now that's called The Courage to be Disliked. And I found it very interesting. So that that one I would also uh, recommend. It's not at all what I thought it was going to be about. Like, I don't even know if it's anything about being disliked yet. I'm like maybe halfway through it. Um, <laughs> but it just has like a lot of really thoughtful things about like how you approach life and how you think about, you know, like it's, it's real big on courage, on mm. like your unhappiness is kind of related to like a lack of courage. And like, if you just had the courage to do certain things, you could increase the happiness. And it, that's really fascinating to me. So I, I don't know if you know this story, but Derek is why I started using Ruby on Rails in the first place. Oh, awesome. Because he rescinded a job I offer. Oh, wow. Uh, he actually, we he interviewed me and this was in late 2004 to, I was going to become the first CD baby developer that wasn't him. And he's like, all right, after the new year, we're going to, um, we'll sort out next steps. And he got stuck in a blizzard because he was using PHP at the time. Quick story time. Uh, yeah. And he, uh, was like, came back for, he got stuck in a blizzard during the winter break and came back and said, Hey, change of plans. I had this book on per called programming Ruby and I want to rewrite everything in this thing called rails. I found this guy named Jeremy. He lives in San Diego. I'm going to hire him. So if you can pick this up, I will hire you in a few months. That was literally like what happened. And I was like, that's wild. Uh, and I had seen that DHH video and I was like, all right, I'll play with this. And then I started blogging what I was doing. And then mm. four or five months later, I was like a very active blogger in the Rails community. Yeah. Eric's like, so what's going on? You want to come work for me now? And I'm like, I, Mike, this is interesting. I want to see where this goes. I'm getting yeah. a little traction from my blog. And now people want me to work on their projects and it's way easier to find Rails projects. People are asking to hire me now. Let me see where this goes. So that's how I kind of got introduced. So. All right, John. Well, thanks so much for stopping by to talk shop with us. Um, where can people kind of follow your thoughts and ruminations about software engineering online? Uh, JohnNunamaker.com is one, and it'll be a link. You don't want to try and spell it. 
And then uh, I'm Jay Nunemaker pretty much everywhere. So almost everywhere is, is Jay Nunemaker. Well, it's been so awesome having you join us on Maintainable. John, I hope you have a good rest of your day. And thank you so much for stopping by to talk shop with us. The same, actually, the exact same. That was awesome. Thank you. Oh, 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 oh.